Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca DeWolf, author of Gendered Citizenship, The Original Conflict Over the Equal Rights Amendment, 1920 to 1963, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2021. In political science, we're very familiar with the work of scholars who try to unpack why the ERA failed to get the required states. But gendered citizenship is more interested in how these earlier debates on the ERA transcended traditional political divides in the early to mid-20th century and ultimately redefined the concept of citizenship in the United States. By using a rich collection of sources, gendered citizenship shows that support for and opposition to the ERA was not tied to conservatism or liberalism. Instead, unusual allies coalesced around two competing views of citizenship, what DeWolf calls the emancipatory and the protectionist. The early conflict over the ERA changed the definition of rights, and the catalyst for that change was the 19th Amendment. Those opposing the ERA provided a modern justification for separate and distinct standards of rights for men and women citizens, and for DeWolf, that formulation still haunts 21st century politics. Dr. Rebecca DeWolf is a historian focused on gender and women's history, politics, and the United States' constitutional culture. She's received the Dirksen Center Congressional Research Grant, as well as grants from American University to do her archival research on the ERA. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, History News Network, New America Weekly, and Frontiers, and I am delighted to welcome her to New Books in Political Science. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that really great introduction. That was wonderful, so thank you. It's always easy to write the introductions when the book is is well-written and fun to read, so welcome. So as you note in your conclusion, we've seen some movement on the ERA as some states have recently ratified or withdrawn their ratification. And and many people also tuned in to watch Kate Blanchett play Phyllis Schlafly in Mrs. America, which was focused on the period after your book ends. But but this book was years in the making. So, you know, what led you to think about the ERA and especially this earlier debate about the ERA? That's a great question. So I really came to the ERA my first year of my PhD program. So this is like 2008, 2009. Um, And as you already noted, a lot has changed with the ERA since then. But at this earlier time, things were still really kind of muted around the ERA. So um, my PhD advisor, who I was a teaching assistant for, for one of his classes, he asked me to give a lecture on the ERA, and I did. And I thought, you know, the topic was interesting, but what really stood out to me was when I opened it up to the students for class discussion, two things really um, amazed me. One, 
Many of the students didn't know that the ERA was never passed. So that kind of stood out to me that there was a general lack of awareness about the amendment's history. And the second, which really um, got me going, was many of the students said something along the lines of, well, yeah, we think that there's still sex discrimination and barriers against women um, from fully participating in public life, but we don't see the ERA as the solution to that problem. We don't think it's necessary. So that really just sparked my curiosity. Why was why hadn't the recognition of persistent sex discrimination not caused for a more robust push for the ERA. So I wanted to solve that mystery. And I became quite obsessed with the ERA after that. Um, I started reading everything I could on it and writing most of my graduate papers on it. Um, And another thing that's important to note is around that time, I had to read a book for one of the graduate courses I was taking, and that's Susan Douglas's Where the Girls Are. And she it's a book on the history of women's portrayal in the media. And she has this great, um, insightful discussion of the ERA in the 1970s, basically saying that the ERA um, epitomizes the typical catfight imagery that we so often see with how women are portrayed in the media. So the catfight imagery basically has women constantly fighting with each other and they're overly emotional and women just can't get along. And the implicit suggestion with that Um, imagery is that this is why women aren't fit for leadership positions. So that strongly impacted how I wanted to approach the ERA. I really wanted to see if and how the conflict or the struggle involved more than just women fighting with one another. And I came more and more drawn to the earliest years of the ERA conflict because it seemed like such a mysterious part of the amendment's history. So much of the original conflict calls into questions many um, of the aspects of U.S. history that we assume to be, you know, true dividing lines. For instance, as you already noted, conservatives and liberals were on both sides of the issue. Feminists were on both sides of the issue. People that we sometimes take as um, human rights heroes like um, Eleanor Roosevelt, she opposed the ERA or someone like Frances Perkins, the first Secretary of Women and Labor, she opposed the ERA. So that really stood out to me as like, oh my God, this is such a mystery that I, I need to figure out. How does this, how did it all work out? Why did it um, fall along the lines that it did? Um, no, it's great. And I, I remember the first time I was reading a book where I thought, wait, the ERA was when? And I, I just had this, oh, I thought it was a 1960s thing. So it's it's true that uh, that this early period really isn't isn't as is in our sort of isn't the isn't in the American consciousness in the same way that the suffrage fight has been. Um, before we dig into the details of of the story that you've got to tell, tell me just a little bit about the previous scholarship on the ERA, you know, what disciplines have cared to assess the failure of the ERA? What were they focused on before we talk about your contribution? So that's a great question. So most of the works, um, and I think you hinted at this in your intro, they primarily look at uh, uh, the ERA in the 1970s, so the state ratification battles. Um, things were going so well for the ERA in the beginning of the 70s. Um, you know, it only fell three states short by the 1982 deadline. So a lot of the books uh, that look at that time period uh, try to tackle the answer of why didn't it get those three states when things were looking so good? What happened? Um, And there are a few works that uh, touch on the ERA's earliest histories, primarily in the 20s um, and the early 1930s. 
Um, and they really look at the ERA as a way to discuss the women's movement after the 19th Amendment and the history of American feminism. And so these works are great. And I don't want to say anything here to make it seem like I don't think that they're great. They were incredibly helpful for me and how I wrote my book. Um, but these works tend to really frame the conflict as a fight between two uh, feminist groups. So on one hand, you have social feminists who oppose the ERA um, and want to expand women's involvement in government reform efforts. And then on the other hand, you have they're sometimes called radical feminists or egalitarian feminists, um, supporting the ERA single-mindedly. Sometimes they're described as being stubborn um, and insisting on complete, uh, complete equality between men and women. Um, and so it's really these works kind of frame it as a fight between women, about women, and really only concerning women. And it's really about, um, you know, they, to their minds, the dividing factor was um, what should women do now with the vote? What should be the priorities of the women's uh, movement or the priorities of women's activism after the 19th Amendment? Um, and again, they are very important works. Um, but I, I, get, I wanted to kind of expand the focus and to see in what ways could that earlier history fit into other major topics and trends in U.S. history um, so I wanted to take a wider view of the participants and even the time period. So I'm not just looking at the ERA in the 20s and 30s. I'm looking at it all the way up into the early 1960s. Um, and what I argue um, is that when you take this wider view of the ERA, the original conflict, so again, not just looking at the 20s um, and not just looking at women who had been associated with the suffrage struggle, but really seeing how it involved an array of men and women politicians, government um, officials, reformers, activists, you know, a right of legal scholars, an array of different types of people. Um, you see that they're not just fighting about the trajectory of the women's movement, they're fighting about how to define rights, um, the rights of citizenship after the 19th Amendment, and how, if and how sex should determine someone's rights. So before we move to the book and to, to, that, to that focus on rights, um, let me just say how much I really enjoyed reading and also how much I learned. I mean, this is material that I write, teach, and think about all the time, but there were something on every page in which I thought, wow, I need to add that to a lecture, next article, uh, et cetera. And I also loved the writing. I think that the claims are so clear and the evidence is presented in such a scholarly yet lively way. And I think it's a you know, it's a book that contributes to the scholarship, but I think it's also a book that's accessible. So it's something that can be assigned to an undergraduate. It's something that a serious reader could actually just pick up and pretty much blow through. I read it at my mom's as a kind of a vacation, oh, no. <laughs> if you can call elder care a vacation, but like a vacation book. So I think this is, it's, it's beautifully written. So, you know, the, you know, then, and, and, and shout out to Nebraska for letting there to be not only uh, the great footnotes, but also a real bibliography. Those are disappearing and they make, they make reviewing and reading a book really hard. Yeah. The rest of it, they've been a great press to work with. So, so you, you've, you've, you've already sort of mentioned this, but let me, let me, let me push us to the 19th Amendment because, you know, you begin the book with the 19th Amendment. And for you, we can't actually understand the need for or the opposition to the ERA 
without beginning with the 19th. And you call the 19th radical. So let's start with why the 19th was so radical and how it changed assumptions about citizenship and the common law inheritance of the US, or maybe not changed, but 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 brought into focus these um, common law assumptions and other um, definitions that we had about citizenship. Okay, so that's a great question. So um, before I dive into how the 19th Amendment was a springboard for the original conflict, I just want to put out there what you know my thesis is or my main argument, and then I'm going to build off of that with the 19th Amendment's um, importance. Um, so the main argument is really that the original ERI conflict created the U.S.'s gendered citizenship. So even though the 19th Amendment disrupted the traditional understanding of American citizenship that had given men authority over women in law and in custom, disparities between men and women's positions persisted because ERA opponents in the original conflict updated or modernized the justification for sex-specific legal treatment. So this is how we get to the 19th Amendment. Um, As I explained in the first two chapters of my book, the U.S. Uh, legal system was founded on a profound commitment to the maleness of rights-bearing citizenship. So U.S. legal and political authorities understood white women and then after the Civil War, um, black women to be citizens and that they were inhabitants of the country. But when it came to being a full citizen or a citizen who enjoyed all the rights of citizenship, United States laws and customs continued to deny women the status of rights-bearing citizenship because women were seen to be essentially weak uh, weak or uh, dependent creatures who required extra special um, protection. Now, the backbone to all of that is what you had already mentioned, the common law tradition, domestic relations, or the doctrine known as coverture. And it's kind of confusing, and I don't want to go into all the details. There's a lot of details in the first two chapters of my book. But what I will say is what coverture did is it denied women having a direct relationship to the state or having an independent civic identity. It kind of assumed that women were covered by their husbands or the male head of the household. And another important um, component of coverture, which is often sometimes overlooked, is that it maintained sex-specific duties um, that uh, husbands and wives owed each other in marriage. So the thinking was that a husband had a right to the free domestic labor of his wife and to her body. And in return, he would provide her with financial support and protection. Um, And so from this thinking animated a lot of different policies, laws, and customs that were sex-specific and really restricted uh, women's opportunities and their autonomy in the home. So just to give some examples, um, these laws or these, um, this way of thinking, coverture, um, it prevented women from entering into contracts, um, holding property, having earning rights to sue or be sued, um, hold, you know, serve on juries, hold public office, vote for, you know, until the 19th Amendment, um, have an independent nationality status. So there's all these different restrictions. And I will note, um, not to get too confusing here, but in the mid-1800s, there was an effort to reform some of the elements of coverture in the common law tradition of domestic relations to give women more agency in their ability to hold property and um, to have earnings. But as several other scholars have showed, like Reva Siegel, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, um, and as I discuss in chapter one, 
there were uh, significant limitations to those reforms. Such the married, that, those are just for people who do know it, the, the Married Women's Property, property Acts. Acts. Yeah. But there were significant limitations to those reforms such that you still saw um, plenty of restrictions on um, women's opportunities and their autonomy well into the um, 20th century. So um, the point being here, when we come to the 19th Amendment, it's important to know that this category of sex was often used as a reason to restrict um, women's rights. Um, and so when uh, lawmakers moved to pass the 19th Amendment in 1920, and just in case anyone doesn't know, um, what the 19th Amendment actually did was remove sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote. Um, and the implicit suggestion there is that it affirmed women's right to vote. But what it really did is remove sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote. So even though that was a big deal, um, you still had all these other sex-specific rights and uh, sex-specific laws and policies that continue to restrict women's rights. So even after the 19th Amendment, women still didn't have a clear right to hold public office or serve on juries, work in certain occupations, have an independent nationality status. And there were still an array of sex-based laws um, that continued to favor husbands and fathers over um, wives and daughters with regard to property, earnings, contracting, inheritance, and guardianship rights. So when the 19th Amendment removed sex as a valid reason for withholding the right to vote, it brought up all these other questions of, oh, well, what about these other <laughs> restrictions on women's autonomy? Um, so if sex is no longer a valid reason to deny the right to vote, is it still a valid reason to deny all these other rights? What are the implications of the 19th Amendment? Does voter status command other civic rights? Um, and what was women's legal personhood now? Should they be held to the same standard as men? So there's all these debates going on, and these are playing out in several different court cases and in the political discourse of the early 1920s. Um, you know, and underlining all these debates is this big question of, well, what were the rights of citizenship after all? And how can we understand sex impacting citizenship now going forward? Um, and for our discussion and for my book, it's important to note that these debates eventually evolved into the original conflict over the ERA as two different interpretations of the principles of U.S. citizenship um, emerged, emancipationism and protectionism. So um, before we talk about the rise of those two and why it was necessary to come up with another constitutional amendment, the ERA, you know, a lot of people know about Alice Paul or Elsie Hill, but I, I'd like you to just remind, but it's a big international audience here and not everybody does um, uh, American history. So would you just remind listeners of where we sort of are in this moment in women in politics uh, in, and where the idea, but specifically not where we are, that would take too much time, but where the idea for a constitutional amendment actually comes from. One thing I dive into in the second chapter um, is this effort to draft an additional constitutional amendment to address these debates over women's rights in the wake of the 19th Amendment. That really arose in the spring of 1921. And Alice Paul took the lead in that effort. So Alice Paul is the leader at the National Women's Party. She was an incredibly influential suffragist. Um, some scholars have talked about her being representative of the more militant side of the suffrage movement. She's known for picketing the White House, um, you know, being jailed and force fed. 
Um, she also organized the you know brilliant, uh, beautiful suffrage parade in Washington D.C. around President Wilson's inauguration. She was a genius when it came to attracting um, the public's attention, um, and so. The 19th Amendment is passed. There's all these questions about, well, what does it mean? And um, Alice Paul, uh, with her very, very good friend, Elsie Hill, who was another leader of the National Women's Party, and this man, Albert Levitt, he was an up-and-coming legal scholar who was actually already working on securing uh, women's rights to independent docile status. They got together in the spring of... Uh, 1921, I think it was for tea or lunch or something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, And at this point, Alice Paul was thinking about, okay, how do we do something to resolve all all this confusion about um, women's rights right now? And Albert Levitt, I think in her head, she was already thinking about a constitutional amendment, but she was actually pushing more towards doing a a limited federal model bill, which I discuss in chapter two. But Levitt really pushed her towards, no, let's go fully for the amendment. But it's, I want to just clarify something here. This amendment, not to overuse the word clarifying, but this amendment in its original uh, thinking was more of a clarifying amendment. It was an amendment intended to secure specific rights for women um, and to, you know, get rid of all this confusion around women's legal personhood. So um, that during that meeting, Levitt actually wrote the first draft of this clarifying amendment, and it's very long, um, and it literally lists every single right that they were trying to get for women. So like right to jury service, right to public office, things of that nature. Um And then uh, things really kind of took off from there. Uh, Alice Paul wanted this effort to be collaborative. So she very consciously brought an array of different people into the drafting effort. Some people, you know, are surprising that they they were involved. Like Dean Atchison was actually involved for a bit. Florence Kelly, who would go on to be a big ERA opponent. But originally she was curious about this clarifying amendment. So she offered some advice. Um, Ethel Smith at the National Women's Trade Union League, Albert Levitt, like I already said, um, Roscoe Pound was involved too. So there's just an array of different people that are offering up advice and there's several drafts going around. Um, Levitt said that he had written 75 different drafts and Paul claimed that she wrote a couple hundred different drafts. So they're just trying to come up with what this amendment's going to look like and what are the rights that they're trying to secure. And it was really awesome to go through the correspondence um, to see all these different ideas at play. But eventually, I don't know if you want me to keep going on this, but eventually the collaborative effort fell apart um, quite dramatically and emotionally for many of the participants. Um, And that's because some of those involved with this effort, wanted the additional amendment to include a measure that would secure what they believed to be women's natural right to special protection. Um, And at this moment, Alice Paul, um, she wasn't against it at this moment, but she wasn't for it either. She was kind of on the fence. She wasn't sure she was really going to back something like that. And when she wouldn't commit to it in in December 1921, there was a big falling out. And the people who really wanted that uh, measure to be included said, we're not going to help out anymore. You're on your own. Um, And so that was a very, like I said, dramatic and emotional time for many people involved. And I try to capture that a bit in chapter two. Um, And Alice Paul put the amendment aside for a bit. And what she ended up doing 
with the National Women's Party and with the help of Bernita Shelton Matthews, another leader in the National Women's Party, they ended up launching <clears throat> this massive uh, research project into women's legal status, which is so incredibly important for anyone that's interested in the history of women's legal status. Um, they, the National Women's Party did this project from the 20s up into the early 1930s, and they issued reports throughout those years. So if anyone's interested, you can go look at those reports. They're in the papers of the National Women's Party um, collection at the Library of Congress. And I think Alice Paul has some reports in her papers in Schlesinger Library. Anyways, so the point of this project, though, was that there were so many um, state-level laws that were restricting women's rights, and they varied from state to state. So it was this confusing patchwork. Um, and so what Paul was thinking is, okay, we're going to go, we're going to investigate all the different laws, we're going to record them, we're going to report on them, and we're going to see if any of them might actually be beneficial for women. Um, and, and if they're not, see how they're harmful. Let's see how they impact women. Um, and I hope I'm not going on a tangent here, so feel free to stop me. But what ended up happening is through this project, Alice Paul and the National Women's Party members became more and more hardened around this idea of, no, we don't just need a clarifying amendment. We need an amendment that's going to um, secure complete constitutional sexual equality because women need to be emancipated. Women have a subservient legal position um, in all these laws. And until... Uh, women are held, men and women are held to the same basic uh, standard of rights, women will always be occupying this uh, subservient position. So that's when they started to really espouse this idea of emancipationism and the need for women to be fully emancipated through the strength of a constitutional amendment that would ensure uh, complete constitutional and sexual equality. No, it's great. Thanks so much for fleshing that out in such detail. And it, and it brings us to where we're going, which is that, you know, the 19th Amendment ends up exposing that, in fact, there are states and localities that have tried to protect uh, women's labor, for example, by saying they can't work at night. And sometimes the motivations for those are very, very patronizing. They should be home with the children. They should be, their bodies should be well-rested so that they can, you know, uh, create more children. But nevertheless, uh, you do see from very mixed motives these these kinds of laws that are on the books. And so part of the concern is, well, what will happen to that special treatment if, in fact, you say that you're going to treat men and women the same under law? So at, as the 19th Amendment takes effect and you, uh, in, you know, in, in really rich detail, show that conversation, which is never simple and isn't and divided into camps. But the conversation emerges after the 19th Amendment is passed as to how to best take care and support women. Again, people have very different views here. And the first view that we'll talk about is emancipation. Uh, you've already alluded to this. It doesn't map onto the categories of Republican and Democrat or conservative and liberal, or as you said earlier, feminist or non-feminist. So expand on what emancipation meant, uh, whether they were actually using that term or whether that's a term that you have come to use to define these two narratives of citizenship that, uh, if I read your book correctly, you know, your contribution is helping us understand that these two approaches to citizenship are still with us, they're still important, and we need to think about this moment in time as one in which these this conversation about citizenship 
uh, created a narrative that that was so powerful that we're still using it. So, so tell us about emancipation, and um, and then we'll and then we'll talk about the uh, the other one. Yeah. Okay. Great. So, um, just as I, I was saying, and as you brought up, there were an array of um, state level labor laws that um, you know. A lot of them were generally well-meaning um, and trying to protect women um, that emancipationists were now having quite an issue with. But there was also an array of other laws that they were having issues with, too. Um, you know, in 40 states, for example, they said this in one of their reports, in 40 states, uh, property acquired through the joint effort of husband and wife still belonged to the husband. In some states, married women's earnings legally belonged to their husbands. Um, in some states, women's ability to enter into contracts was still, they still need their husband's consent. So there's not just the labor laws, there's all these other laws that are, are upsetting um, the pro-ERA position. Um, and so in their minds, um, these persistent uh, legal restrictions on women's autonomy created um, not only fluctuating definitions of women's legal personhood, but also inconsistency with inconsistencies with regard to the rights of American citizens. Um, and so I use the word emancipationism and emancipate because they capture the pro-ERA position because ERA supporters often drew on the notion of fully emancipating uh, women from a legal system that has historically given men authority over women. In fact, they actually use the exact word emancipate or to emancipate when describing the ERA's purpose. And that's where I, actually I came up with the word after seeing it used over and over again in their arguments for the amendment. And I'll just note um, Alice Paul, when she started playing around with phrasing or writing the amendment by herself, she first modeled it on the language of the 13th Amendment because she believed that um, the remnants of coverture um, and all these restrictions on married women formed a type of involuntary servitude for women. And so, again, this idea that women needed to be emancipated. Now, she would broaden the wording of the amendment away from the language of the 13th Amendment because as she was going through this research project with the, the other National Women's Party members, she was realizing that the ideas of coverture were not just impacting um, policies affecting married women, but also just women in general. Um, and so that's when she started thinking, okay, it's, it's all women that need to be emancipated. Um, and I, I just want to note um, two things here. So in the 1920s, um, there was very few uh, ERA supporters and very few emancipationists. And so it was really this, just the National Women's Party. And that's going to change. And we can talk more about this later um, in the 30s and 40s when the ERA starts to get um, significant momentum. But when the ERA started to get significant momentum, and this is important, it started to develop um, conservative and liberal branches. So you had conservative emancipationists and you had liberal emancipationists, or in other words, you had conservative ERA supporters and liberal ERA supporters. Um, and so just so I can break it down a little bit so people understand, for conservative emancipationists, um, they saw in the ERA arguments that aligned with their support for private enterprise and um, you know, their support for pro-business arguments and their criticisms of the government's involvement in the economy. They really kind of thought of rights in general in more negative terms as a way to uh, protect citizens from government intrusion. Um, and they would often, the more conservative emancipationists, would emphasize what they believed to be um, citizens' right to economic self-fulfillment and the ability to compete in the marketplace. 
Um, and there is also like a little bit of legal formalism going into the arguments. You know, the idea of, well, if sex isn't um, a valid reason to withhold a right here. It can't be a valid reason in all these other instances. Then you also have liberal emancipationists who are thinking more in terms of positive rights and um, that they think of rights as the way that the government has a responsibility to, um, you know, ensure economic security and social well-being of its citizens. And so they saw the ERA as a way to expand social benefits um, so that men and women citizens can enjoy them, both of them. Um, so the difference with conservative and liberal emancipationists, as I found in my research, was more on what they thought the amendment could do or what they could do with the amendment once it was passed. But they still came back to these core arguments of there needs to be a single standard of rights for men and women citizens. Men and women citizens should participate, should be able to participate um, in, the, in public life on the same terms. And sex should not be a legitimate legal classification in and of itself. That's great. Thanks. No, thanks so much. Um, the, the second approach to American citizenship is protectionism. And there also, there is a very strange collection of people who aren't normally on the same side or not accustomed to agreeing with each other, who find themselves uncomfortable with this idea that men and women should just have the same definition of citizenship. So we just need one definition of citizenship. So explain a little bit more about the protectionists as you, you know, referred to some of the names earlier. They're people that we're used to seeing as radical, we're used to seeing as feminist. So why was it that they were so concerned with holding on to a different treatment of men from women? Great question. So um, as I use protectionism in my book, um, I'm referring to a specific way of reasoning that developed um, after the 19th Amendment and really a reaction to this growing um, ERA campaign. Um, and so I just want to explain something very quickly because it might be confusing to people who haven't read my book. Um, when I'm talking about protectionists or protectionism, I'm not just referring exclusively to advocates of special labor legislation or sex-specific labor laws. And so for those that don't know, um, sex-specific labor laws arose in the, let's see, I always get this wrong, late uh, 20s, late late 1900s, early 20, early, uh, early 1900s, sorry, <laughs> um, as a way to regulate women's working conditions and shield them from economic exploitation. So these were sex-specific laws that determined what jobs or tasks, I think you've already mentioned this, jobs or tasks women could do, it regulated their hours of work and provide, sometimes provide min minimum wages for women. And they, again, were based on this idea that all women were mothers or potential mothers and that they had um, a primary responsibility in the home that the government needed to protect. Um, but as I describe in my book, the protectionist habit of mine not only included liberal-minded persons who opposed the ERA and backed these special labor laws, but it also included conservative individuals who didn't like labor laws. Um, and so just to um, dive into that for a second. For liberal amendment um, opponents, for conservative uh, amendment opponents, they believe that women's special protection sh should come from the male head of the household. And um, liberal amendment opponents believe that government reform efforts could also serve as effective instruments of protection for women. Um, so 
To put it simply, protectionism espouses the virtues of sex-specific rights, and it encompasses the core ideas behind the anti-ERA stance because both conservative and liberal ERA opponents criticized the ERA as a threat to sex-based legal distinctions that upheld what they believed to be women's natural right to special protection. So um, a shared desire to preserve the law's ability to treat citizens differently on account of sex uh, after the night after the passage of the 19th Amendment, fueled the protections position. Um, alongside that desire, protections believe that while women should be respected as rights-bearing citizens, they did not want the law to categorically group women's rights with men's rights. Um, as I describe in my book, protectionists reasoned that actual sexual fairness, and sometimes they, they would call it real equality, meant um, securing two distinct but equally valued sets of rights for men and women. So a key point here um, in trying to understand the opposition arguments is that, as we can see, especially during the original ERA conflict, the uh, arguments against the ERA didn't really revolve around this idea that women shouldn't have rights or that they should be denied their rights. In actuality, protectionists were the ones saying, we are the ones protecting women's rights. Um, so. Just as a quick note, um, <clears throat> through the course of the original ERA conflict, protectionists moved the argument against equal rights or equal legal treatment away from a pre-19th Amendment emphasis on the reasons to exclude um, women from certain rights of citizenship towards a post-19th Amendment emphasis on the need to uh, protect and develop a distinct citizenship for women that supposedly came with its own set of rights. And so for protectionist women's special rights were things like being exempted from military service, which will shift to being exempted from combat duty, um, also being kept safe from the ravages of capitalism and kept safe in their domestic uh, roles. So it's not just the labor laws um, that were upsetting protectionists, even liberal protectionists uh, we're finding issues with other laws um, that they thought needed to stay on the books too. Um, so I, on, another thing I just want to mention about protectionists is there's two things they're trying to protect. So they're trying to protect the law's ability to treat men and women differently on account of sex. And they're trying to preserve what they see as, or trying to protect what they see as women's natural right to special consideration and special treatment. So, and I guess, Part of your question is, why did they believe that separa a separation and rights was a good thing? And this is because they really believed uh, that men and women differed in their biological and social functions and that women had roles in society that men didn't have and women had needs in society that men didn't have and women had duties and responsibilities in the home that men could not do. Um, so because of that, the government had to recognize um, these uh, special needs that women had through a separation and rights. And sometimes you imply this in the book, that it's also strategic. These laws are already agreed to, and we know that those laws would later be established and created, uh, extended, excuse me, to to all workers uh, and, and in other aspects uh, of public life. So, you know, was there a strategic aspect to it? Not that they disagreed, but that it was there? No. So actually, that's one thing. I um, I had thought that too when I started my research. And then as I got digging, I realized like people like Frances Perkins really still thought that there should be a separation. And you see this, I think I talk about it in chapter four and chapter five, even after the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, you have Frances Perkins testifying at an ERA 
congressional hearing, I think 1945, saying, no, women still need sex-specific laws because women have duties in the home that men don't have. So it wasn't just like, oh, this is a different strategy for how to secure equal rights. Protectionists, even liberal protectionists, didn't want equal rights. They wanted equality, but they thought equality would come through a separation of rights, uh, two sets of rights that would have equal value, but be sex-specific. Okay, which brings to mind separate but equal, which brings me to our next question. Oh, great. <laughs> so we, one of the difficulties of writing about this period is that there's a lot of scholarship focused on white women's history, yet it's always presented as women's history. And in thinking about the movement to pass the RA and these two ideological approaches to citizenship, protectionism and emancipation, you know, how did they intersect with race and, and how does attention to race or lack of attention affect, affect the conflict over the ERA from 1920 to 1963? So that's a great question about race. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know if I'm going to have a great answer for you because it's a hard one. Um, I will say that when it comes to race, like so many aspects of the original ERA conflict, um, Race is not, a, as, is not a clear-cut dividing line as you would maybe think it would be. So what I mean by that is you have um, Black Americans supporting it and Black Americans opposing it. And you also have racist arguments pervading the support for the ERA and the opposition to the ERA. Um, and you also have arguments, um, you know, advocating civil rights for Black Americans um, on the pro-ERA side and on the anti-ERA side. So like so many other things with the original conflict, you see all these overlaps. So just to go into a little bit more detail, um, Mary Church Terrell, um, who I know you're familiar with because of your other podcast interview, she was an ERA supporter and she definitely saw the ERA as being a part of one long struggle for um, you know human equality. Um, but you also had someone like Mary McLeod Bethune, who opposed the ERA, and um, she was more of a backer of the Women's Status Bill, which was a protectionist measure uh, to compete with the ERA in the late 1940s, um, and which really, the Women's Status Bill really kind of wrapped around this idea of um, a separation of rights for men and women. Um, but then also, you had uh, racist ideas popping up on the opposition side. So... Um, there's this guy, Peter Seitz, who was a legal advisor to the National Consumers League, and he wrote up a lot of different documents on arguments against the ERA. Um, and his documents, those papers that he wrote up can be found in the National Consumers League paper uh, archives. And that's just really horribly racist stuff. And I don't know if <laughs> I don't even know if I should give it light right now, but just he would argue something along the lines of, uh, white women, like black men and women, are like children. And because of that, they're uh, dependents and they cannot be held to the same legal standard as white men because they can't have that type of autonomy. Um, so just really awful stuff. But then on the same side, you have on the opposition, someone like Esther Peterson or Emmanuel Seller, who were supporters of civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement and civil rights legislation. Um, but they, you know, for them... Race, race discrimination um, constitute an um, unnatural transgression against someone. But when it came to sex discrimination, they actually thought that that could be equitable because in their minds, men and women had such different biological and social functions. So treating men and women based on sex alone was actually fair in their mind. Um, 
And then to get back to the emancipation side, again, you have individuals who see it as one long struggle for equality, um, like Alma Lutz, of, uh, she's a feminist activist um, of the Natural Women's Party, and, and another Natural Women's Party member, Dorothy Shipley Granger. Um, but then you also have on the emancipation side, um, individuals like Representative Howard Smith, who was a segregationist, um, you know, did not in any way, shape, or form support or like civil rights legislation for Black Americans. Um, and he he did support the ERA, though. And there's quite a connection with him and the National Women's Party. And he saw the ERA as a way to secure uh, equal rights for white men and women. He did not think it would go beyond that. And he also thought of it as a way to ensure that uh, Black Americans wouldn't have an advantage over white women. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, what you see in the original ERA conflict is that um, for some people, it made complete sense to uh, be against discrimination in certain areas, but before discrimination in other areas. They thought it made you know complete sense to be for sex discrimination or against sex discrimination and vice versa with uh, race discrimination. So when it comes to the ERA, it, I think sometimes we want to put it into this nice big narrative of the struggle for social justice and um, equality. And sometimes it falls into that and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it was used as a way to obstruct equality for some people. Uh, just since you've mentioned it, I'll just call out the name. So it's Alison Parker's Unceasing Militant, which is uh, uh, the first and a, just a truly remarkable uh, academic biography of the life of um, Mary Church Terrell. And uh, you mentioned uh, Bethune, and also on the podcast, we've covered Jill Watts's The Black Cabinet, The Untold Story of African Americans in Politics During the Age of Roosevelt, and Jill is, is currently working on a book about Bethune. Anyway, both of those are great companion books to this one, so you can go back and listen to the other podcasts. Um, okay, we have not a lot of time, and I, we still have a lot of the book to cover, but before we turn to some really big events that impacted how these two narratives of American citizenship play out, let's talk just a little bit about your sources and how you wrote this book. I mean, you are often citing books that I know extremely well and also documents I've never seen. So, so tell us a little bit about your book's accesses to private and public documents to reveal more about the ERA. And, and if you don't mind sharing an aha moment, uh, you know, archival document moment, we're, we're always a fan of that on the show as well. Um, goodness. You know, I, I actually have a little story that I wanted to share, and I just hope it's not going to be too long. Um, so I hope it's okay if I go into it real quick. But when I first approached this topic long ago, I was under the impression that I think you see in many different um, generalizations in some books about the earliest years of the ERA conflict. And it goes something like this, that conservatives and Republicans were for the ERA and liberals and Democrats were against the ERA. And then it switched in the 70s. So that was my thinking of it when I first came to my sources and everything else. Um, and I thought to myself, I would write a typical political history that shows how the ERA can shed light on the history of the Re Republican and Democratic parties. And I was wrong because when I started to dig into the sources, I was realizing, wow, there's actually a lot of Democrats supporting the ERA in significant ways and a lot of liberals supporting the ERA in significant ways and a lot of conservatives and Republicans opposing the ERA in significant ways. And these are things I cannot ignore. So it's not a typical political history. And that's when I had my biggest aha moment that 
okay, this is not going to be um, about Republicans versus Democrats. And at that, that point, I had to really let the sources speak for themselves and stop putting my assumptions on them. And that's when I realized, okay, what's really going on here in this fight is a struggle over rights. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be a history about American citizenship. And that was my big aha moment. And, you know, it seems so obvious now because it's an equal rights amendment that that, of course, would be the dividing factor. But it didn't seem like that originally to me. So um, for my sources, I first looked at um, the typical collections that you see on um, topics related to the ERA. So like the sources of major women's organizations like the National Women's Trade Union League, National Women's uh, Party Papers, League of Women Voters. But because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a female-centric narrative about women, you know, two groups of women fighting with each other, I expanded um, my um, collections, the collections I was going to be looking at, to include an array of different men. So I knew Emmanuel Seller um, hated the ERA and was influential and obstructing the ERA's congressional pathway in the uh, late 1940s. So I went through his papers. Same with Carl Hayden, Senator Carl Hayden. I spent a while at the Hayden Library in Arizona going through his papers, and he has a lot on the ERA up there. Um, I also went to various different presidential libraries because I knew the FDR administration was predominantly against the ERA. So I wanted to figure out what was going on there. Um, Truman was the first president to come out and support the ERA, but then he backed away from it. So I went to the Truman Library to figure out why that was. Um, And same with the Eisenhower Library. And I also used a lot of different court cases, which those really come out in the beginning chapters to kind of get my legal footing around, um, you know, the traditional masculine conception of full uh, citizenship status. And then the meat of my sources are the congressional materials on the ERA. Um, That's just a treasure trove of information. Congress held numerous hearings on the ERA from the 20s up into the early 1960s. And these are lengthy, long hearings. And because I was primarily interested and figuring out the main ideas and the core ideas that were animating each position, um, these the congressional hearing testimonies were essential for me because they're providing the public arguments that each side is using. Um, so I, if anyone's interested, I highly recommend looking at those sources. And I filled in the blanks behind the public arguments with the archival collections. So, so the thank you. No, the. The book is roughly divided into three parts. We focused a lot on part one that establishes the two emerging narratives of citizenship. The second part emphasizes the impact of the Great Depression and World War II on the ERA campaign and how they actually uh, strengthened the emancipatory position. The last part highlights the decline of emancipation after the war. Um, And I guess since we can't talk about everything. I'm going to bring you to that part about, so, you know, what happened, particularly developments in how the Supreme Court interpreted the 14th Amendment that affected both emancipation and protectionism um, after the war. And and if you need to give the two-sentence version of Part two, feel free, but okay. let's let's keep it short because we're okay. I'll try very hard. I'm just going to say real quick. A key thing that I try to show in my book is that the idea that um, the protections victory over the ERA at the original conflict was inevitable is not fully um, accurate. That there was hope for the ERA and that the ERA had significant support in the mid 1930s up to the 1940s, and things were looking quite good for the ERA. 
but um, the protectionists came back around and got the upper hand. So how did they do that? Um, I'm going to try to go as quickly as possible. Um, World War, II, the post World War II era um, had a lot of post readjustment anxiety that um, people were really afraid that if women didn't give up the jobs that they had during World War II and didn't get them up to the returning soldiers, that there would be a slip back to another Great Depression. So policymakers really were pushing women to return home and give up their jobs. And this emphasis on traditional sex boundaries, women in the home, being homemakers and men being the providers, aligns with the protectionist call for clear lines between uh, the rights of men and women citizens. So it created a ripe environment for protectionists to reassert themselves. But another um, underlying um, theme, I guess, of my book is that the participants in the conflict couldn't just rely on um, the changing social, economic, political circumstances to push the pendulum in their favor. They had to seize the opportunity, if you will. So protectionists did seize the opportunity. They reorganized themselves into a big organization called the National Committee to Defeat the Unequal Rights Amendment. It was a unified organization, which allowed the protectionists to Quite a um, title, launch a coordinated right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> they really I, I get mean, to the point with the title. <laughs> So, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. Just the titles, the titles okay. are so funny for all for this entire period because they're so similar and yet they're so different. But that one, I that know. one is very clear as to what it stands for. Yeah. So um, they launched a coordinated attack on the ERA's uh, position in Congress. By that point, the ERA had really made a lot of progress in Congress, and, and it looked like it was a, up for a vote in both houses of Congress by the end of the war. And because of the NCDURA's efforts um, in coordination with certain conservative Congress members, they were able to um, obstruct that pathway. But, um, and this is really important, so even though there was a dip in the immediate uh, post-war period of uh, women's employment, so more women returning home, by I think it's 1948 or 1949, um, the numbers of women working outside the home began to climb again. Um, and that's because more and more uh, families were relying on the income of two spouses to be able to participate in the growing American consumer society. And those numbers are going to really take off in the 1950s. More married women are working outside the home. So that change is, a, is still aligning with the emancipationist way of thinking that women should be free to do things in society beyond their conventional roles in the home. Um, and so that allows for kind of a lingering emancipationist impulse. So um, let's see, the ERA is endorsed again in 1948 by both political parties. It comes to the Senate floor again in 1950 and 1953. So it's still lingering around. It doesn't have anywhere near as as much support as it did in the 40s and 30s, um, but it's still around and it's really annoying a lot of protectionists. So what they ended up doing in order to kind of um, really stamp out the allure of emancipationism is they uh, readjust their opposition strategy into what they call a positive program. Um, and so they changed the NCDER's name to the National Committee on the Status of Women. And they started putting forward all these alternative um, comprehensive measures that basically were um, a campaign for limited equality that would allow for both men and women to be recognized as rights-bearing citizens while keeping intact uh, the rationale for sex-specific legal treatment. So um, some of these initiatives were things like the Women's Status Bill, um, the Hayden Rider, and the President's Commission on the Status of Women. Um, the reason I end my book in 1963 is because that's when the President's Commission on the Status of Women released its final report. But again, um, protectionists were um, 
uh, able to suppress the allure of emancipationism with these alternative measures. And by basically saying you can do things to or arguing you can do things to enhance women's status without complete constitutional sexual equality. There's another way to go that will enhance women's um, ability to participate in public life, but still also recognize their primary duties in the home. Um, and so I think you had asked about the intermediate level of uh, constitutional equality and Yes. Yeah, that the Supreme Court is also at this moment, I mean, previously, the court had been asked to extend the 14th Amendment to women. I mean, if women are citizens, then then they should turn the kind of strict scrutiny that they give to race, to gender as well. Um, but that had not happened. I, and the way I, you put it in the book is that it starts to happen, just as the emancipationists have gotten a lot of traction with the ERA, and that that distracts in some way from the power of their argument because the court all of a sudden is doing something. But it's not strict scrutiny. So if you just briefly explain. Okay, so I want to just, so the idea for what you're hinting at is the intermediate level of judicial scrutiny. And that idea came from the President's Commission on the Status of Women. In their final report, the goal of the PCSW, one of their main goals was to make the ERA unnecessary. Esther Peterson, the architect of the PCSW, was a big ERA opponent. And so the final report is so important because it was like they finally came up with this idea of how do we get women to be recognized in the law as rights-bearing citizens while preserving the law's ability to treat men and women differently on account of sex. So they offer up this alternative constitutional approach, which is what you were saying, the appeal to the 14th Amendment. And the final uh, report of the PCSW, they say, interest. we don't need the ERA because we already have an amendment in the Constitution that women can use. Uh, interested parties should seek litigation in order to have the courts draw lines between arbitrary um, discriminations against women and preserving laws that benefit women, sex-specific laws that benefit women. So in their minds, this was like a perfect way to go. This is how we're going to get women the constitutional recognition of being rights-bearing citizens while also keeping sex-specific legal treatment intact. Um, and so I think what you're also talking about is in the 1970s, um, you know, the ERA comes back pretty strong. And there's various different reasons for that, which we don't need to get into right now, but I talk about it in my epilogue. Um, so what ends up happening, though, is what I discuss um, in terms of the reasons for the ERA's failure in the 1970s is two things. One, the resurgent protectionism brought on by Phyllis Shafley, even though the opposition position became quite conservative in the 1970s, it's still appealing to these core protectionist notions of um, the stability of American society requires on divisions and rights between men and women and that women need special protection. And also, um, the other problem was the pitfalls rooted in what uh, feminist activists were trying to do as a dual constitutional approach. So whereas the 14th Amendment strategy was used as a diversion at, at, uh, tactic in the 60s, in the 70s, feminist legal strategists um, developed an idea where they would pursue both. And the thinking was, we'll use the 14th Amendment to get immediate relief for ongoing litigation efforts, but we'll keep fighting for the ERA as a way to secure permanent constitutional sexual equality. Um, and as you are saying, 
when they were pursuing the 14th Amendment um, in the 70s, they did want it to get more up to that strict level of scrutiny. And what ended up happening is it got to the intermediate level, which again, echoes what the PCSW is putting forward in the report, which is this idea, and I hope I say this right, um, that the government or states can treat citizens differently on account of sex if it can be proved to be substantially related to a, a governmental, uh, an important governmental cause. Um, for it to be strict scrutiny, it's something more along the lines of uh, the states and the federal government cannot treat uh, citizens differently based on something like race, unless there's no other way to achieve an essential state objective. The 14th Amendment strategy falls short of getting up to that strict level of scrutiny. But the point for the ERA conflict in the 70s is when you have ERA supporters saying um, we can also look to the 14th Amendment as a way to secure women's rights. You're taking out the steam behind the urgency of the ERA. You're having people say, then, well, then why is the ERA needed if we already have a constitutional amendment that we can use? So my conclusion in the epilogue is that the ERA in the 70s um, succumbed to the resurgent protectionism brought on by Phyllis Schafley and the pitfalls in the dual constitutional approach. And both of those things have roots in the original ERA conflict. Which is good. That leads to my next question, which is that, you know, the book contributes to our understanding of American political, legal, economic, and social history. But gendered citizenship is constantly relating back to contemporary or relating forward to contemporary views on citizenship that continue to impact all areas of American life. So for you, what are the most important legacies of the period that you studied and this ideological debate that you're focusing our attention on over citizenship? You know, what, what, what do we have left over now that is, that is still something we need to understand as having come from this earlier period? So I still see um, threads of protectionism impacting society today. Um, one of the implicit arguments in my book is that um, those protectionist thoughts about uh, being more fair to have a separation and rights between men and women um, still makes up the reasons for why there's a gap between men and women's societal positions. I mean, if we come back around to what my original question was to myself when I was giving that lecture to the students so many years ago, why hadn't the persistence of sex discrimination uh, led to a more robust drive for the ERA. My answer was because protectionists created this idea that it's actually better for women to have their own rights. Equal rights would be a bad thing for women um, because women have special needs and special things that men don't need or have. Um, and so I see you know, the threat of protectionism um, impacting society and that this idea of there being a sexual division of labor and that, you know, men are seen as still the primary breadwinners or the primary providers, and women are still seen as being, you know, the primary caregivers. Um, and that is from protectionism. And I, I mean, we definitely have seen that play out quite awfully, the impact of that with the COVID-19 pandemic and women's labor force participation now is, you know, the lowest it's been in 30 years because so many women have had to give up their jobs in order to take care of their children who aren't in school anymore. Um, so we still slip back to that de facto thinking of, well, maybe women can work outside the home, but there's still their primary roles in the home. Um, but I will say, I try really hard to give hope in my book. So um, even though you, we see the dominance of protectionism and threads of protectionism still impacting women's uh, societal status today, there's always these chances for emancipationism. And so I 
discuss how emancipationism rose in the uh, 30s and 40s because when society goes through big uh, social, economic, and political upheavals, um, it opens the window for um, the dominant cultural consensus to align with the ethos of emancipationism. Because when there are these big upheavals, it uh, shows all the problems entrenched in the status quo. And emancipationists inherently want to attend to those problems because they want to, um, you know, take away this thread of uh, women being the primary caregivers. So um, I, you know, I said in one Washington Post op-ed that I wrote like in March 2021 that the uh, COVID pandemic may have given another window of opportunity for ERA supporters to finally push the ERA through because we are seeing now more and more how these limitations and separations of roles um, is impacting women and holding women back. And when you say push it through, because there's quite a bit of controversy over whether or not uh, something that had a, a certain window, which is way, way past, can can really be, wh- why not just have somebody submit a new ERA and pass it through the states? Is, is, that, is that what you see as the next thing that happens? Again, given that maybe... The students that you talked to, however many years ago, don't they don't comport with my students. And I'm teaching at, at a Catholic university with a, a wide range of students from Democrat to Republican, from various different backgrounds. And I'm not sure they believe in special rights. Um, That's good. Anymore. I mean, I think I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> so and and you know, we so so is that what I mean, you're not you're not claiming to study public opinion or politics, but is that the is that what you mean by the next run at this? Or do you mean the actual more states on the on the old one that began in the 1970s? Um, okay, so I think uh, I think things have changed a lot since you know I gave that lecture in 08, 2008, 2009. Um, but I we saw more of a rise in like a pro-emancipationist uh, way of thinking when uh, there was uh, Quite a backlash to the election of former President Donald Trump. So you saw the wave of like anti-gender discrimination campaigns like Me Too, Time's Up. And that's when we saw the additional state ratifications come in for the ERA. So Nevada in 2017, Illinois in 2018, and Virginia in 2020. So for those that don't know, the argument is that the ERA now has the three states um, necessary for full ratification. But as you already suggested, there's legal questions about the validity of that 1982 deadline and about um, the legality of the five states that rescinded their previous ratifications. Um, so, I mean, uh, there's a lot of ways to go with this question. Um, so I would say that there's a lot of hope for the ERA, um, you know, ERA supporters and advocates have a lot of different interesting arguments that they've been putting forth recently um, about, you know, Biden could just issue a new um, opinion from the Justice Department, have it be certified or whatever. I mean, it's probably going to end up before the Supreme Court, I think. Um, But if the question that you started off with was, why don't they just start over again? And I will say, actually, there was a two strategy approach originally with the revitalization of the campaign, the ERA campaign. There was the three state strategy, which is what we're seeing now, and the start over strategy, which was introduce a new ERA. And that ERA is actually a different wording a little bit. So and I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, I do remember thinking, hmm, is that still the same sentiments that was in the original ERA? So the 1970s ERA is the same 
substantive clause from um, Alice Paul's version in 1943. And I think a reason why so many people are attached to it is because, first of all, it really does embrace what they're going after, which is to ensure that men and women can participate as citizens on the same terms. But there's also an attachment to Alice Paul as the creator of this movement, you know. Um, And because it seems like the more practical, easier way to go. I mean, starting all over again, you have the both Senate and the House you have to go through and then all the states. So, um, but But I... You know, but in this political context, it's a very interesting question as yeah. to whether or not senators, even from Republican states, when we know how Republican suburban voters vote, would be willing to put themselves on the record as opposing the Equal Rights Amendment. That's a good point. And something um, I try to really um, show in my book is that the idea of the ERA as being like a natural wedge issue between Republicans and Democrats or liberals and conservatives is just not fully accurate. It has a really long and deep history of transcending that divide. So there are, even though we don't see it as much, there are still conservative elements to that pro ERA position. So there is a potential for it to, um, create a bigger coalition again of supporters. I don't know if it will happen, but we'll see. (laughs) Well, as we close, I want to ask you about your next project, but I also want to ask you a language question since you you brought up the differences between the two ERAs. Um, You know, so many of the scholarly resources that we have are boxed into categories that we are reinterrogating as scholars and as a society. And and you write with great sensitivity about the tension between sex and gender. Was it challenging for you to talk about men and women at a moment when scholars and people on the ground find these assignments so fraught? Mm, That's such a good question. Um, So this kind of gets a little bit into like my methodology of how I approach the sources. I really really wanted to understand the words and arguments in that historical context. Um, And so I predominantly use the word sex um, because that's the word that they were using over and over again. So at that earlier time in the 1920s until the early 1960s, um, there was a biological understanding of gender that um, uh, permeated the entire conflict. So both ERA supporters and ERA opponents believed that um, men and women were inherently different. So uh, the participants did not separate the concept of gender from the concept of sex. So when I say sex, I'm referring to the general anatomical differences found in the spectrums of male and female persons and gender broadly referring to um, the qualities and values a society may attach to men and women. Um, And so in the original conflict, they didn't take gender away from sex. In their mind, biological differences in anatomy uh, meant that men and women were going to be inherently different in their behaviors and uh, qualities. Even emancipationists thought that women were morally superior to men and that women were the caregivers and, um, uh, well, not so much the caregivers, but more of the benevolent source and uh, force in society. They just thought that women should be free to choose how they were going to exercise that uh, benevolent force. Um, so yes, it is absolutely hard to come from our frame of mind today and how we're understanding the fluidity of gender and sex. Um, but I really, my primary objective was to get at what they were arguing about in their specific historical time period. So I really tried to read the sources um, uh, without my thinking and my standards of thought put onto them, if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. So 
Uh, before we close, and I know you just finished this book and you should be celebrating it, but I'm wondering uh, what or if you have started a new project and if you'll give us a little hint about what it is yeah. you're working on. So I have an, an idea that I've been thinking about for a while and hopefully at some point I'll be able to start actually working on it. I really, really want to write a book about Elsie Hill. Um, she's Alice Paul's very good friend. She ended up marrying Albert Levitt, the man who helped uh, write the initial draft. And then Albert Levitt and Alice Paul got into a gigantic fight. Um, but Elsie Hill and Alice Paul stayed very, very close. So I just, I, I don't know why. It just, it just really sparks my interest. I want to figure out their friendship and what was going on behind the scenes with them all. So that's my um, next book project would probably be on Elsie Hill or maybe the friendship between Alice Paul and Elsie Hill. Well, it's good when you come to the Alice Paul, uh, call me up. I'm right here in New Jersey <laughs> near the beautiful house for people who haven't been there. Well, thank you so much. Um, the book is Gendered Citizenship, the Original Conflict Over the Equal Rights Amendment, 1920 to 1963, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2021. We've been talking to Dr. Rebecca DeWolf about the book. And Rebecca, good luck with it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing your your, your, the next project, whatever it, it ends up being. Great. Thank you so much for having me.